Welcome, everyone, to the Helping Hands of Our Community podcast, addressing the social determinants of health. And I am your co-host, Roger Saclupe, along with... Drew Reynolds. Good to be here. Thank you. Drew, I'm so excited. Today, we have an amazing colleague, an incredible individual, Dr. Tianka Crocker, who is a social worker, but also a professor here at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte in the School of Social Work. Welcome, Dr. Crocker. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So a little bit about Dr. Crocker. She received her doctorate from the University of Texas at Austin, and her research interests include social policy, economic mobility, digital inclusion, and program evaluation. And so what we're going to talk about a little bit today is around her research. So Dr. Crocker, I am so excited that we get to start off a podcast about social determinants of health with a focus on net inclusion, because I think that part of what is exciting about this podcast is that we can continue to stretch the bounds of what we understand health to be. And I think a lot of what social determinants as a perspective around health has always been pushing to do that. So, so glad to have you on the podcast. But before we dive into all of that, for those of our listeners who are not already familiar with your work. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Absolutely. So my research focuses on digital inclusion for economic and social well-being. So digital inclusion is basically equitable access to information and communication technologies. So that means digital devices, having access to the Internet, and the literacy to be able to use the Internet and to create with it. My recent research is focused on public-private partnerships for digital inclusion, Um, So I'm working on a couple of different papers related to partnerships with Google Fiber and addressing the homework gap and community networks in Austin, Texas, and also looking at the role of online banking as a factor in promoting housing goals for residents in public housing in Austin. So really, how can we use the Internet as a stepping stool to help people to get to where they need to be economically and socially? That's so awesome. And I think that you have that like great combination of trying to figure out what is it that people are needing or having access to and seeing this new emerging technologies as ways that can be both access points and perhaps maybe barriers as well. Take us back a little bit into your career. What were some of the experiences that you've had that led you to take on the work that you're doing today? Oh, that's a good question. (laughs) I like to think back to... um undergrad. I went to undergrad at the University of Virginia, and I'm pretty sure I was the first person to order pizza online. And I remember that being a very important experience because I remember Papa John said, we're going to we're going to make this announcement. We're going to be able to order pizza online. I was like, I'm going to be the first person. So I think like a Sunday came 11 o'clock. I ordered pizza and I called just to make sure they got it. And they were like, ma'am, you can't order pizza online. I was like, yes, I just ordered pizza online. And they were like, we have your order. So that validation, I think, was my entryway into exploring technology as, as, <laughs> as a way to improve people's quality of life. And from there, I went on to get my master's degree at George Mason. And my thesis was a web page around health equity policy in Virginia. So I built a web page that really outlined all the policies that were under considerations key points, and actually won an award for my thesis project. So I think it was sort of in the back of my mind as I was going through different professional settings and educational settings. But yeah. Wow. Who, who would have thought that pizza <laughs> would have been the foundation of your work today? That's, that's awesome. It's so funny how like the tiny things in our lives can be these moments of inspiration, but also like how simple, but also how complicated that is. Like so much of our lives now are run through the internet. And now the idea of ordering pizza or any food online is like, 
it's something you get nudged with every day with an email in your inbox saying, hey, order some food or whatever, you know. But talk about that being a foundational experience. So why is something like that so challenging? Talk about this question of digital inclusion and, and how the Internet can make things easier, but also harder for people. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think we see a lot of the same parallels in the populations that don't have access to technology and the Internet. They're the same vulnerable populations that we work with in social work that are also facing other challenges. So there are low-income populations. So people with disabilities, recent immigrant families, um, 98% of the internet is written in English. And people don't really think about that in terms of the language barrier itself. There are a lot of challenges with getting everyone involved. And it's the cost is a huge factor, right? You have to have the digital device. You have to have sustainable access to the internet is not necessarily affordable for a lot of low-income populations. If you think about it between health, food, housing, what are you going to give up first? More than likely your internet, although that might be the best resource you have to connecting to family for social support or connecting to your medical provider to make sure that you're adhering to their recommendations or a condition. So it's the first to go, but it's becoming such a vital resource now that we think about it more as a utility, as electricity. Everyone needs access to the internet. Yeah, so true. And having that additional expense sometimes seen as a luxury, but increasingly now people are recognizing it as a necessity. I know that in my life, I feel like I go crazy if I'm without the internet for 15 minutes <laughs> um, and how hard it must be for a lot of people, you know, who are have that barrier be be a challenge. How do you see something like internet access and digital inclusion? What are the ways in which that can be both maybe directly and indirectly having an impact on a person's health? I will say directly, there's been a large push for things like electronic medical records. A lot of medical companies are pushing their, their patient portal so that uh, patients can have access to make appointments and to refill prescriptions. You know, CVS, Rite Aid, all those organizations or companies, you can now refill your prescriptions online. So there's a direct connection to being able to easily obtain the resources, the health resources and information you need. Otherwise, you have to call in or you have to go visit a doctor, wait in line, whereas you could send an email to a nurse and get a, a quick answer to a common problem. So medical adherence to um, medications is a big one. General access to information. One of the biggest reasons people go on the Internet for information is for health information. Of course, you hear the jokes about people going on WebMD and you're like, you know, it's probably cancer um, <laughs> and sort of self-diagnosing. But it can be really helpful to get people in the door to see a health provider to have some basic information that the problem lies here. And we're seeing a lot of new gains. There's things like talk therapy. We're seeing a lot more mental health services using technology to connect with potential clients to sort of do more telemedicine and reduce the barriers uh, between mental health practitioners and people in need of care. That's really great that you brought up the point of telemental health or telepsychiatry, teletherapeutic services, um, not only here in a city like Charlotte, but when you think about rural communities and, you know, access to services perhaps net inclusion, the ability to have internet service is going to be key. However, we also know that in rural communities, it might be really hard to obtain that type of access. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know rural communities is something that I don't know if we talk a lot about or we should. That's a great point. There's actually a lot of effort being generated toward that now in terms of some federal initiatives to really get people connected rurally, particularly for health reasons. 
and it's so costly, they they really don't have access. So of the 3% of Americans who still use dial-up, a lot of them are in rural areas because they have no other access to technology other than satellite, which is really not affordable in a lot of cases. So there's been a, a big push to connect people rurally to the internet, getting them connected to whether it's rural libraries, sort of other anchor institutions in the community where they can go to get internet access because it's such it's such a need. Absolutely. And I think one thing I'm, I'm thinking about, too, is many of our uh, people who are listening to this podcast and others and myself included, people who are engaged in work in their professional practice, whether it's in the social sector or for-profit sector or wherever, you know, are, are probably asking some of these questions themselves. So what are some tips or pieces of advice that you might give to people to things that they should think about or they should consider when it comes to net inclusion? So some of the tips, if you're thinking about putting services online, because e-governance is a, a big a big thing now, it's, you know, cost effective for governments to put a lot of their information online and require those services online, but you have to think there's a significant part of the population who doesn't have access to information online. Or if you're going digital first, if you're putting your best information on the web and you're still sending out some print information, but it's not as thorough as the information that's on the website. So to just really be mindful of the populations who don't have internet access if that is your primary mechanism for connecting with a particular population. Uh, So Net Inclusion is our annual conference by the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. It's going to be here in Charlotte this year, April 1st through the 3rd. It's a great conference if you want to come out and hear from other practitioners, policymakers, and other municipal leaders who are all working to see how we can spread access to technology in our communities for well-being. So we'll be looking at health. We'll be looking at digital literacy, community empowerment, how technology is being used in state governments. So what I would encourage um, anyone to take a look at some of the pre-conference workshops I'll be leading a workshop on digital inclusion in academic literature because we all talk about it differently in uh, different disciplines, but it all fits within the digital inclusion programming umbrella. So taking a look at some of the workshops to see what interests you and coming out to hearing more about the various sectors, like what banks are doing, private sector companies are doing, what libraries are doing. Libraries are so critical for Internet access. I can't say this enough. Everyone goes to the library. (laughs) I was watching... um, the most recent Halloween movie. And Jason had escaped from the state hospital along with some other people. And while Jason, you know, was going out and doing what Jason does, they found everyone else in the public library checking their emails. I was so excited when in the movie. Um, So libraries are critical for digital inclusion. So I would say if you use technology in any facet of your work or think that it can be a stepping stool to getting people better connected to resources and information, check out the conference. And so that is www.digitalinclusion.org backslash net inclusion 2019. So if you're interested in finding more about the conference and what Dr. Crocker just mentioned, please check out that site and register to go. So, Dr. Crocker, real quick, I would love to know a little bit more about your collaboration with Google. Google has been around for quite some time now and seems to be at literally the fingertips of folks' laptops and on their minds. What's, what's the work with Google that you've been uh, coordinating over the past uh, year? What's it like? Um, yeah, it's really interesting work. So specifically with Google Fiber, this was out of Austin, Texas. 
Google Fiber has a great program in terms of community partnerships. I think they're they're leading on that respect in a lot of ways for internet service providers. So they've made a significant investment in the community, say, hey, we're, we're not only bringing the internet to the city, but we want to work with individuals, community leaders, anchor institutions on how we can develop digital literacy programming. Because unfortunately, a lot of times that falls off the conversation out of that three stools when you're thinking about literacy devices and broadband. Unfortunately, literacy falls out of that, but you can have all the access and laptops in the world. But if you don't know how to create an email account or to protect yourself from phishing scams and things like that, it's not going to be helpful in the long run. So they've done a lot of of programming in terms of working with um, anchor institutions. I worked with Austin Freenet. Um, down in Austin, we were a tech site where we connected people to training around accelerated learning programs using CompTIA, things like that. And we also had a computer lab. So they also worked with a lot of other partners, Meals on Wheels, Latinitas, a lot of Latinx organizations in Austin. There's a whole slew of folks. So I think they're doing a lot of good investment um, in the cities where they're trying to build their fiber network. So you mentioned creating information and helping folks understand access to not only net inclusion, but how to set up email, how to look for phishing scams, et cetera. Could you talk a little bit about how that's being implemented for our older population, older communities? Because a lot of individuals may not have the information they they need to know what to look for. Yeah, I believe there's a researcher um, at the institution where I graduated from, Dr. Namki Choi, who's done a project with homebound seniors and Meals on Wheels. So using that for telemedicine. So telemedicine is a, a huge thing, particularly for homebound seniors, using the internet for social support, connecting with their grandkids or other family members. And believe it or not, having the internet brings your grandkids to your house. Right. Because they know if you have a gigabit connection, like, yeah, come on over. You can cook and I'll, I'll be on YouTube. So it's, it's really important for seniors. I've trained AARP seniors that had been out of the workforce or were coming back to the workforce to look for something part-time, but they had never really used a computer. So it's a little, it's the little things like talking about composing an email and the attachment looks like a paperclip. You remember the paperclips, you know, or the disk drive, you know, that means that you're saving because that's how you used to save things in the 80s. <laughs> So finding ways to connect the lingo and the sort of making the user interface more relatable to them, because I think relevancy is key for seniors because, you know, they've lived their life. They're like, I don't need this. Right. But we can make your life a little bit easier in some respects and even more enjoyable if you can learn some of these things. So how how does this translate for individuals who are non-English speaking? And I'll, I'll go ahead and use my mom and dad as an example. I love you, mom and dad. And hopefully when you hear this podcast, you'll still love me. But um, <laughs> so, you know, my mom and dad do not know how to set up email. And I think part of that is because there's this sort of anxiety of like, what's going to happen to the information once it gets out there? And, you know, a little bit could be missing, you know, they're misinformed. And as much as we try, I try to inform them, there's still a little bit of that reluctancy. And so luckily they do know how to operate the, you know, their iPhone and we can do FaceTime with, with the grandkids and us. But there are other ways of communication that I would love to include my parents that I can see a little bit of a struggle. And I think a lot of that is because it, linguistically it's challenging. Yeah, absolutely. Like I had mentioned before, people don't really think about it, but most of the internet is written in English. So it is a challenge for, um, of course, there are things where you can translate languages. I was once working with some refugees, I think they were from Jordan or Syria, and trying to 
teach Arabic where, you, you know, you read from right to left and then there's a difference. It's a lot of challenges. So there are some software up there. YouTube is a big thing in terms of connecting with people who don't speak English and helping them to use the internet because there are tutorials and then you can change the language um, and there are closed captions. So there are things like that. A lot of this work, I was a Mozilla fellow for a little bit, and there are people around the globe who are looking and addressing these problems across the continent of Africa, South America. So I think we're going to see more tools in the future. But right now, it's pretty much a basic translation of websites like Google Translate is, is pretty much what we have right now. But it's a huge hurdle for people who don't speak English. Yeah. Dr. Crocker, one question I would love to talk about, too, is how we think about these questions of digital inclusion, literacy, in the context of leading on opportunity. And as many of our listeners are familiar in Charlotte, there's a great economic gap between the has and the has nots, as it were, and inequality is a challenge in our community. So how should we think about the Internet? Is that, do you see the Internet and digital inclusion as a mechanism to kind of help ameliorate that gap, or does it make it worse? What do you think? I think it absolutely has an opportunity to make it a lot better. So I feel like we're still at the infancy of what broadband and the internet really is going to mean for our society, right? So we've just gone from dial-up to sort of low-speed broadband to now gigabit, and we're moving towards the internet of things where these devices are connected to the internet. I think we don't fully know where this is going, but now is the opportunity to get disconnected and marginalized communities connected so that they can have an opportunity to help create the systems so that we don't have things like Google Images identifying African-Americans as gorillas, that all of those things happen when there's not true inclusion, right? So in terms of opportunity, I think there's opportunities for accelerated learning. There are a lot of people that are going through coding training programs or other UX design, user design programs so that they can learn quickly. They don't have to go through a college setting. These are short, maybe 20-week programs where they can come out making middle-income wages without having to go into debt you know, with student loans, et cetera, things like that. Um, and particularly for disadvantaged or disconnected communities who may not have a web designer in their family. You know, mm -hmm. if you don't know what these careers a software engineer looks like, how are you going to know that that's something that you fit into? So having these internships and shadowing experiences so that people can see this is something that's doable and it's something that is learnable. So I think it, right now is the opportunity. It's the best time to get people connected and learning these tools so that we can get ahead globally, right? Because we're not the only people that are using these resources. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and wisdom with all of us today. I know that I was super excited when Roger and I kind of put this together and we found out you were going to be one of our first. So that's so great. <laughs> yeah. So for people who would like to get in touch with you or learn more about your work, what is the best way that they can do that? Feel free to email me. It is T-I-C-R-O-C-K-E-R at uncc.edu. That's T-I-Crocker at uncc.edu. Or you can check out my webpage, tiancacrocker.com. Feel free to shoot me an email. I'm more of a Redditor social networker and less of a Facebook social networker, so you can't connect with me there. But yeah, just shoot me an email and I'm, I'm very responsive and happy to talk to the community about these issues. Great. Thank you. And as we continue to work on our podcast website, we will definitely include Dr. Crocker's information on our site. And that way, listeners who are interested can reach out to you, Dr. Crocker, in that way. So Dr. Crocker, it's been so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
for our listeners who are excited about um, learning more about Dr. Crocker's work, you can find it on our website, thehelpinghandspodcast.com, where you'll get access to links and show notes and where you can listen to the podcast and share it with your own network. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Dr. Crocker, again, we want to thank you for your time, for your dedication to the helping profession. And as a fellow social worker, I am very honored and proud to be connected with you. So for all our listeners and on behalf of my co-host, Dr. Drew Reynolds, we will be here next time. And remember, strong always, always strong.